Good morning, everyone. Great to be back with you this morning. Thank you again for the invitation to come along and to share. And if you have a Bible, could I encourage you to open it up and uh, turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read a portion from Romans chapter 8, a really well-known section of Scripture. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read from verse 18 through to verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 28. Words will be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, uh, please feel free to follow along in whatever version of the text uh, you've got in front of you. The Apostle Paul writes and he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And I hope that is seen as not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Allow me to pray for us uh, just now as we look at that passage of scripture together. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have this morning to gather as your people. Thank you that you have redeemed us. You've called us unto yourself through your son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for your word, which has been preserved for us, inspired by your spirit, and is able to transform us and to challenge us, we pray. And so, Father, to that end, we pray just now as we look at these words in Romans chapter 8, we pray that your spirit would move in each of our hearts. You know um, each of our situations. You know our challenges. You know the areas where we're weak. And so, Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, move in our hearts and conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose great name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, when you know how a story ends, it radically transforms your current perspective. Isn't that true? When you know how a story ends, it radically transforms your current perspective. Uh, like, so there are some of you in this room, and I would imagine that you know that there's a new James Bond film that's recently been released. But for some of you, I would imagine that you haven't quite got the opportunity to go to the cinema to actually watch that James Bond film, and you're really looking forward to do so. But wouldn't it be a real shame if I just stood up here this morning and told you the ending? Wouldn't that be a bit cruel? I'm not going to do that, by the way. But wouldn't that change your current experience as you were watching that movie unfold when you already know the ending, your current perspective would be a little bit transformed, wouldn't it? For the worse. Because when you know how the story ends, it radically transforms your current perspective. Sometimes it works for the worse, sometimes it works for the better, doesn't it? Imagine this week you were actually going to a job interview and as you're walking into the job interview, you're really nervous and you're thinking through all the possible questions that they might ask you because you know that the answers that you give are going to determine whether or not you get the job. But imagine right at the start of that interview, just as you take your seat, the guy who's in charge kind of looks at you, whispers in your ear and says, listen, don't worry, you've actually already got the job. 
Let me tell you how it's going to end. We're going to offer you the job. It doesn't really matter what you say. This is just kind of a formality. Wouldn't knowing how the interview is going to end kind of radically transform your current perspective? All of a sudden, the burden is lifted. You feel liberated. And so regardless what way you look at it, when you know how a story ends, it radically transforms your current perspective. And you know, as you read the scriptures, and as you read in particular Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 28, what the Apostle Paul wants to tell you, in effect, as a Christian is this, you know how the story ends. As a Christian, you know how the story of this universe ends. You know how your story ends. How does it end? The story of the universe ends like this. Jesus Christ wins. He will usher in all of his people to join him in the new heavens and the new earth to spend eternity with him where sin is just a distant memory and we get to enjoy perfect relationship with our Savior forever and ever and ever. That's how the story ends for this universe. That's how the story ends for you if you're a Christian. The story ends wonderfully, beautifully. And so what the Apostle Paul wants to say to you in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 28 is this. Since you know how the story ends, that should radically transform your current perspective. Since you know how your story ends and that it's a good, beautiful, amazing ending, that should radically transform your current perspective and it should do so in a positive way. It should liberate you. It should free you. It should encourage you. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Romans chapter 8 and what that chapter entails. Uh, the whole way through the chapter of Romans chapter 8, it's like this high point in Scripture, isn't it? Some call it the Mount Everest of the New Testament. Because every single verse that you read in Romans chapter 8, we're almost told a new truth about an amazing status that you possess as someone who is a Christian. You could pick nearly any verse and it'll give you a new truth that's amazing. Verse 1, we're told there's no condemnation for you in Christ. Verse 2, we're told that we're set free from the law of sin and death. You could cast your eye down to any verse. Verse 9, we're told that the Spirit of God lives within us as Christians. You could go down to verse 14, we're sons of God. Verse 15, we get to call God the Father, Abba Father. Every verse hits you with a new amazing truth, a new amazing privilege, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What an amazing chapter. But then you kind of get to verse 17, the verse just before the passage we're looking at this morning. And it's almost like this little disclaimer, isn't it? It's almost this little hinge. Let me read verse 17. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So from verse 1 to 16, you've been told all these amazing privileges that are yours in Christ as a believer. And then you get to verse 17, and Paul also says, but these are true provided we suffer with Christ. So it's not like the Christian life is just all sunshine and rainbows. It's not like these glorious privileges which are yours in Christ Jesus mean that the Christian life is easy. No. Paul says there's suffering involved. And so by the time you get to the end of verse 17 of Romans chapter 8, you're kind of asking a question, aren't you? Okay, Paul, you've told me that there's this future glory that I'm going to enjoy, the new heavens and the new earth, eternity with Christ my Savior. But you've also told me that in order to get there, I need to suffer. Much of the suffering which we'll experience is a direct consequence of being a Christian in this world. And so as you think about these two realities, perhaps the question that you're inclined to ask is this. Well, then is the future glory really all that worth it? Is it worth it? If I have to endure all of this suffering, if I have to endure all this pain in order to one day get to the future glory, well, then is the future glory really worth it? 
wonder are you asking that question this morning as you think about your own trials and difficulties in your life? Is it worth it? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul doesn't leave you hanging. Sure he doesn't. In fact, in the very next verse, the first verse of the passage we're looking at this morning, he gives us the answer, doesn't he? Verse 18. Let's look at it together. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul doesn't leave you hanging. He gives you the answer, his answer, straight away, doesn't he? Is the future glory worth it? If I have to endure all of these sufferings in this present life, Paul says, you better believe it's worth it. In fact, notice how Paul frames the comparison. He says, there's no contest. He says, the current sufferings of this world are not even worth comparing with the future glory that's to be revealed to us. Paul says, it's no contest. It's like me saying to you this morning, who would win in a fight? A worm or a lion? You would say, come on, that's not very fair. There's no contest. Give me a harder question. Or if I was to say to you this morning, what would you rather have? One pound or a billion pounds? You would say, come on, no contest. That's how the Apostle Paul frames this comparison, the comparison of enduring our current sufferings on earth and the future glory that awaits us as believers. Paul says there's really no contest. The future glory is so good that our present life of suffering doesn't even compare. It's not comparable. But you know, I would imagine that in a congregation this size, there are some of you here this morning and you're, you're listening to what I'm saying and you're listening to the words of the Apostle Paul and you might say, well, that's a lovely sentiment and that's a lovely thought, but truth be told, I don't really believe you. I mean, you should see what's going on in my life right now. You should see the difficulties that I'm facing right now. You should see all the challenges and obstacles that are in my way right now. And I appreciate the Apostle Paul's words. And maybe it's a nice little verse to put on your Facebook or your Instagram or to print out and to put on your wall. But truth be told, when push comes to shove, I don't really believe you. Well, I want to remind you, just before we even look at the text, who it is that's uttering these words. See, the Apostle Paul is not some young, naive guy who's somehow naively optimistic about the sufferings of life, who hasn't really experienced any difficulty in his life. In fact, let me just read for you really briefly a few words from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And here the Apostle Paul unpacks some of the trials and the struggles that he himself has personally faced. Listen to what he says. He says this, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day and adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often with Without food and cold and exposure, and apart from all these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's who writes these words in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Someone who is not somehow immune to the trials and the difficulties of life. No, Paul knows all about it, doesn't he? Perhaps more so than any of us. And what's his conclusion? He says, When I consider all the sufferings of this world, I am convinced that they don't even remotely compare to the glory that awaits us as Christ Jesus. Whatever you're enduring, the Apostle Paul says, it's nothing compared to what you will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. But you know, it's still quite possible that you're here listening to this this morning and you're thinking, well, okay, Paul, I see you've been through a few things as well, but truth be told, 
I still don't believe you. Well, if you fall into that category this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to further try and persuade you why the future glory is so good that our present sufferings cannot compare. And he's going to try and do that in three ways in these verses this morning. Three ways to try and persuade you that the future glory is so good that even our current sufferings, regardless of what they may be, cannot compare. Here's the first way he's going to try and persuade you and the first line of proof he gives, really in verse 19 through to verse 22, and it's this, that the future glory is so good that even creation longs for it, okay? The future glory is so good that even creation longs for it. And so how can you know that the future glory is so good that our present sufferings can't even compare? Paul says, reason number one, because even creation longs for this future glory. That's how good it is. Look what he says, verse 19. So verse 18 is kind of his thesis statement. That's his big idea. That's his conclusion. Why? Is that true? Reason number one. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul says our current sufferings cannot compare to the future glory because even the creation longs for this future glory. Even the creation longs for it. Now, you might be here, and you're maybe a very logical thinker, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, hold on a second, how can creation long for something? Like, I'm a human being. I'm a sentient being. I know what it means to long for something. But how on earth does creation long for something? Well, as I was preparing for this sermon, my mind was taken back to a term that I learned actually when I was about 15 years old, uh, doing my English media GCSE, Okay. Uh, it's a term that I thought at the time was totally useless and meaningless and was never going to affect my life in any way whatsoever. But here it is, years later, helping me interpret the Bible. So if you're 15 or 16 and you're in school and you're thinking, this is pointless, you never know, okay? You never know. And the term was this, personification. You heard of that term? Personification. What is personification? It is to apply human-like characteristics to something that's not human. To apply human-like characteristics to something that's not human. Why are we learning about this in English media? Well, we see personification in movies all the time, don't we? And in books all the time. Anyone seen the movie Toy Story? What do we see in Toy Story? We see personification. Toys acting like people. Human-like characteristics applied to things that are not human. Toys. Toys speak. Toys laugh. Toys make jokes. Toys move. It's personification. We see it all the time, don't we? In movies and books and films. But in particular types of literature that we see in the Bible, we also see personification, don't we? Think, for example, about the Psalms. In the Psalms, we hear about the oceans singing praises to God, don't we? Now, does the ocean actually sing? Have you ever been in the ocean and it starts to sing? It's probably the time to get out of the ocean, isn't it? Maybe go to the doctor. But if the ocean could speak, what is the psalmist saying? You would hear singing and praise to God. The mountains roar. All this language, personification, applying human-like characteristics to things which aren't human. If they could speak, here's what you'd hear. And so that's what the Apostle Paul's doing here once again in Romans chapter 8. He's embodying personification. He says this, if creation could speak, what would you hear? You might hear a number of things, but one thing that you would hear are groans of frustration. Groans of frustration. Verse 19 talks about longing. Verse 22 talks about groans. If creation could speak, you would hear groans of frustration and anticipation. And in fact, it doesn't just say that creation longs for the new heavens and the new earth. Notice that verse 19 says, eagerly longs or eager longing. That word eager, the root there has the imagery of the creaking of the neck. 
wonder if you've ever been in a, a large group of people, maybe a concert or something like that, and you're kind of standing towards the back, and you want to see what's happening at the front, but you can't quite see what's happening in the front, and so in this posture of anticipation, you kind of creak your neck to see what's happening on the stage. Paul says that's the posture of creation. Creation groans, and it eagerly awaits, it eagerly longs this future glory, the new heavens and the new earth. It's creaking its neck, looking forward for that great day. Even creation. And so perhaps the question you're asking, well, well, why is creation longing for the future glory? Like, why is creation bothered about this future glory being ushered in? Well, again, Paul gives us two reasons. Notice reason number one, verse 20. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What's the first reason that creation is longing for the new heavens and new earth? Reason number one, because creation has been subjected to futility. Creation has been subjected to futility. What does that mean? Well, we looked at that word futile last week, actually, didn't we, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It means to be rendered in a state of emptiness or meaninglessness. And what's being said here is that something happened creation at the fall. Something happened creation now that we live in a Genesis 3 world and that it has been rendered futile. It's kind of caught in this cycle. We saw it in Ecclesiastes chapter one, didn't we? That the sun goes up and then it goes down, the water runs into the sea, but the sea's never full because that water gets evaporated into the atmosphere and then it gets released again by rain. The wind blows to the south and then to the north and round and round it blows. There's kind of this cycle. We live in a world now where where creation struggles, it's limited, it's frustrated. There are thorns and thistles. There are viruses which spread and infect and even kill people like the coronavirus. Creation has been subjected to futility. It's been subjected to futility. It's been rendered in this meaningless kind of purposeless cycle. And so if you're here this morning and you're trying to live your life to try and maximize this life and just live for the here and now, know that even from this verse, it kind of hints to you, doesn't it, that you're in a real futile pursuit because this world has been rendered futile. You're not going to find ultimate meaning and ultimate satisfaction here and now. I'm sure you're not. Because the very world that you live in, sin hasn't just affected you as a being, it's affected our entire earth. We've been subjected to futility. And you might ask, well, who, who subjected it to futility? Who cursed our world? You might say, well, there's a number of candidates. Maybe it was Adam. Maybe it was Satan. But notice it was neither of those candidates because look what we're told at the end of verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, note, in hope. In hope. And so this was something that was done with hope attached to the end of it. This wasn't Adam. Adam didn't have a contingency plan when he fell in the garden. Satan didn't have a plan B or a a hope-attached cursing of our world. This is something that God did as an act of judgment on our world God judged it and rendered it into a state of futility. And so that's the first reason that creation groans. It's been limited in some way. But notice the second reason, verse 21, and it's this, that creation, although it's been rendered futile, it will one day be set free. Do you see it, verse 21? Then the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Why is creation groaning in anticipation for the new heavens and new earth? Reason number one, it's been subjected to futility. Reason number two, on that day in the future glory, it will be set free. You see, creation was meant to be God's museum, wasn't it? 
declaring his glory, declaring his praises and his majesty. And creation does do that, but it does it in a somewhat limited way. But ah, the Apostle Paul says on that day, creation will be set free. Creation will be set free. There'll be no more thorns and thistles, no more viruses. Creation will be able to sing unrivaled glory to God, showing us what he is like in all of his glory and splendor. If you go to the Old Testament, you see a number of pictures, don't you, of what this will be like? You can go to places like Isaiah chapter 11, where we read about the wolf and the lamb lying together. Can you imagine that in our world right now, in a world that's been subjected to futility, a sin-filled world? Could a lion and a lamb really sit together? No, the wolf would attack the lamb, kill the lamb. But on that day, when creation has been set free, that's possible. Isaiah chapter 11 also talks about the nursing child, the toddler, and the cobra playing together, right? Now, I'm not a parent, and I don't know very much about parenting, but I'm pretty sure you don't need to go to a parenting class to know that it's not a good idea to leave your toddler with a cobra, right? But on that day, what's Isaiah saying? It'll be fine because the creation will be set free. Sin will be but a distant memory and all its effects with it. And so creation is longing, it's groaning, but it does so in not just frustration, but anticipation. One day things will be better. One day this judgment will be lifted. And that's why you see verse 22 likens these groans to the groans of childbirth. You see that? Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Why childbirth? Well, again, I'm no expert on childbirth, trust me. But I know two things about childbirth. Firstly, it's very painful. But secondly, it gives way to great joy, doesn't it? And so the pain that you experience in childbirth is somewhat different to the other pain that you experience in this life. Why? You willingly endure it so that you might receive the hope that's attached to it, the new life that's attached to it. And so Paul says the groans of creation are different to other groans. Why? Because this is a hope-filled groaning. It's a groaning knowing that one day things will be better. That's why elsewhere the Apostle Paul talks about us as Christians, we grieve, but we grieve differently. We don't grieve as those without hope. Ours is a hope-filled grieving. And so it is even with creation. Creation has been limited by the fall. It's frustrated by the fall. And so it groans in frustration, but ultimately in anticipation. One day I will be set free. I don't know if you ever walked past a a white van or a white car on the street and maybe that white van or white car is extremely dirty and uh, some joker has walked there before you and they've kind of imprinted with their finger. You ever seen this? They imprint with their finger a little message on the back of the car or the van and usually what they say is, clean me, don't they? It's like personification of the car. It's as if, if the car could speak, it would be saying, clean me up, right? What Paul's saying here is this, if creation could speak, if you could imprint with your finger the words of creation, it would say, clean me up. That's what it would be crying. And Paul says one day it will happen, and so creation is groaning in anticipation. And so that's the first reason, you see, the Apostle Paul gives you as to why the future glory is so good that even your present suffering cannot compare. Even creation, beautiful creation, even creation is longing for that day. That's how good it's going to be. But notice the second reason the Apostle Paul gives as to why the future glory is so good that even our present sufferings, no matter how bad they may be, cannot compare. And the second reason is this. Not only does creation long for that day, but even Christians long for that day. Even Christians long for that day. Read with me from verse 23. And it says this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. How do you know the future glory is so good? that even your present life of sufferings cannot compare. Firstly, creation longs for it, but secondly, Christians long for it. That's how good this future glory is, that even Christians long for it. You say, what do you mean? Well, we've got to remember that this passage comes in the heels of what we've previously read in verses 1 to 17 of Romans chapter 8. And what do we say about those verses? In nearly every single verse, we see a new truth revealing to you the glorious status and the glorious privileges that are yours by product of being a Christian. And so as you read through the start of Romans chapter 8, we see glorious truth after glorious truth of these immense privileges that are yours in Christ. And you're thinking by the time you get to verse 17, my goodness, the Christian really is a privileged person, and you are. But now what's the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, even though all of those truths are true of you, that there's no condemnation for you, that you're adopted into God's family, that you've got the Spirit of the living God living inside you, even though all that is true, don't you still find yourself, even as a Christian, longing for a little bit more, don't you? Don't you have days where you still feel so weighed down by the burdens of life and the chaos of life? Don't you even in your daydreams think about, oh my goodness, I just can't wait to go to heaven because life is tough. Don't you have those moments? Doesn't make you weird. Paul says it makes you human. And it even makes you a Christian in a fallen world. That even we, with all the privileges that we enjoy, with our adoption into God's family, with the spirit of the living God living in our bodies, even we long for the future glory. That's how good it is. Because Christian, Romans 8 has told you one thing, and it says there are many, many, many privileges that are yours right now as a Christian, but even you with those privileges still find yourself longing for the future glory. That's how good it is, Paul says. That even we, he says in verse 23, with the first fruits of the Spirit. That's an agricultural metaphor, isn't it? The first fruits was a promise that harvest was beginning, but ultimately there was more to come. And that's what we experience right now. We've got all of God's spirit. We have seen part of God's glory revealed to us. Uh, But Paul says that's just the beginning. One day that glory will be revealed to you in all of its fullness. And so even you with the spirit of the living God, you groan inwardly as you look at verse 23, await your adoption as sons. Now if you've got a real eye for details, you read through Romans chapter 8, you might think that you kind of spot a number of conflicts. And here's where we kind of approach another verse that we kind of think is a bit of a conflict because in verse 23, we've just read that we're awaiting our adoption as sons. But if you look back to verse 15, you'll notice that it said that we've already received the adoption as sons. And so it seems like a bit of a conflict. In verse 15, we've received our adoption. Now in verse 23, we're awaiting our adoption. And we see that time and time again in Romans chapter 8. These two parallels, which are almost, they almost look like they conflict one another about we're awaiting our adoption, but we are adopted. We're awaiting to be called sons of God, but we are sons of God. And you kind of think, does Paul not really, has he not made up his mind yet? But really, there's a motif the whole way through Romans chapter 8, which is this the already, but the not yet. That these things are already true of you as a Christian right now, but they've not yet been revealed to you in their fullness. And so you haven't yet been able to enjoy the full benefits of what these truths mean for you right now. Let me try and illustrate this to you. I want you to imagine that a couple, a married couple, go into an adoption home because they want to adopt a new child. 
And as they look around and they finally have a child who they're ready to adopt, they're about to take him home. And so they get all the social workers and all the legalities drawn up. And so they're just about to sign the papers. And as they're at the adoption home signing the papers, at that moment when the papers are signed, tell me this, is the child at that moment when the papers are signed, are they adopted? Well, the answer is yes, aren't they? They're 100% legally adopted. Their new status now is adopted. They are part of that family. But have they experienced the full benefits of what it means to be adopted? Well, no. They haven't yet got to go home and meet their extended family. They haven't got to see their new room. They haven't got to experience Christmas as a part of being adopted into this family. And so even though they're 100% legally adopted, that is their status. It's 100% true of them. The full experiential benefit of that hasn't yet fully been revealed to them. And Paul, the whole way through Romans 8, is kind of saying that that's true of you right now as a Christian. You're 100% legally adopted into God's family because of the finished work of Christ on the cross that is signed, sealed, delivered. You have a glorious new status and there are particular privileges that you enjoy right now as a consequence of that status. But the Apostle Paul is saying this, ah, you haven't seen anything yet because the full benefits experientially of what your new status means hasn't yet been revealed to you but it one day will in the new heavens and the new earth and all the blessings of what it truly means to be adopted into God's family and to have received his glory all of that will be made known to you. It's going to come rushing in and you're going to see once and for all the goodness and the glory of what it means to be one of God's children. And it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult living now having not fully seen those realities played out. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 24 that that's why we hope. He says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says this is where we have Christian hope. That we know for a fact that these things are true and that these things will be true. And so we hope. Hoping is not just a crossing our fingers and let's see. No, Christian hope is a steadfast hope. Paul says, these things are true of you now and these things experientially will be true of you in the future. And so he says, take heart. Take heart. The future glory is so good that no matter what your present circumstances are, they cannot compare. How do we know? Well, firstly, the future glory is so good that even creation longs for it. Secondly, the future glory is so good that even you as a Christian, with all the privileges that you enjoy, even you long for it. And then thirdly and finally, and really briefly, the future glory is so good that even the Spirit is longing for it. Even the Spirit is longing for it. Look at verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, not only does Paul say that creation groans, not only do we as Christians groan, but now he tells us that even the Spirit groans. Even God the Spirit groans as we live in this fallen, broken world. Now, it's important to notice the distinction between creation's groaning and our groaning and the Spirit's groaning. Creation groans and we groan because we've been in some way limited by the fall, haven't we? The Spirit has not been in any way limited by the fall, and so his groaning is not by way merely of frustration, but by way of identification. The Spirit doesn't groan by way of limitation, the Spirit groans in identification. He's identifying with us and identifying with creation in the fact that we have been marred by the fall. And so the Spirit groans not because he's limited, he groans on our behalf by way of identifying with us. 
Isn't that good news? When you're weighed down by life, when you don't even know what to pray, the Apostle Paul says, well, even in those moments, the Spirit groans for you with utterings too deep for words, ones which are perfectly caught within the will of the Father. And so how do you know that the future glory is so good that even your present sufferings cannot compare? Well, creation's groaning, Christians are groaning, and the Spirit, by a way of identifying with you, is groaning as well. And to sum this up, he says in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a well-known verse, isn't it, verse 28? One that we know well and we would do well to meditate on. But notice a few things as we close about what the Apostle Paul says there. Notice who these glorious truths are for. What we've just said, what we've just talked about in this glorious hope that awaits us. Who's this for? Is this just for everyone? Can all of mankind just celebrate because this is where history's heading? Well, no, notice verse 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God. In other words, the hope that we've just teased out, this is a hope explicitly reserved for the Christian. And the reason I say that is perhaps you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. I want you to know that if you're not yet a Christian, all these glorious truths and these glorious hopes that we've looked at in the future, these don't yet apply to you. Because these truths are for those who are in union with Christ, those who know and love and trust God. And so unfortunately for you, at this present moment, this is as good as it gets. This world of frustration and pain and turmoil, this is as good as it gets for you. This is the closest to heaven you'll ever be. Unless you do what the scriptures call you to do, which is to turn from your sin or to repent from your sin and to plead with this God for forgiveness, acknowledging that you have rebelled against him. That the reason our world is so broken and so fragile and so messy isn't just because of all the problems out there. That's what we like to tell ourselves. No, the problems begin in here. We contribute to the brokenness of this world. We, cont- we contribute to the, the messiness of this world. We're not merely the victims. We're the perpetrators. And so come before this God and plead for his forgiveness on the basis of what he's already done for you by sending his son, the perfect one, Jesus Christ, to die in your place and for your sins and to act as your substitute. But if you're here and you are a Christian, then take heart that these truths are for you. For those who love God, God is working all things together for good. That this world of pain and chaos and trauma, this is as bad as it gets for you. This is the closest to hell that you will ever be. Because God is working all things together for good. Now when we say that God is working all things together for good, it doesn't mean that, well, you know, I failed an exam here, but God's working all things together for good, so even though I failed the exam, I'll get the job that I want. Or God's working all together things together for good, so even though my family life was really difficult for the first 40 years of my life, well, God's working all things together for good, so that the, the next 40 years of my life, things are going to be plain sailing. No, that's not what he means. Remember, Paul's just been giving us this cosmic view of what God's doing in our world. And so what Paul's saying is, God is working all things together for a cosmic good. That history is only heading one way. How will this world end? It won't end by a virus that somehow manages to kill every single human being. It won't end by a madman hitting a big red button somewhere. It won't even end by climate change or global warming, as important as those issues might be. No, history is only heading one way. And it ends with God gathering all his people together to be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth and to enjoy an eternity with him forever with sin being but a distant memory. And so are you here this morning feeling weighed down, crushed by the burdens of life, frustrated, 
disheartened, discouraged. Paul wants to say to you, remember the future glory that awaits you. It's so good that even your present circumstances, regardless of how bad they may be, cannot compare to how good that's going to be. So much so that even the creation groans in anticipation. Even we as Christians, with all the privileges that we enjoy, we long for it too. And even the Spirit, by way of identifying with us, groans on our behalf as we await God, working all things together for the good of those who love him. Let me pray for us, and then the band will sing our closing song. Father, we thank you for the truths that we read of in Romans chapter 8. We thank you for the fact that even though we live in a world which is broken and frustrated and marred by sin, we thank you that you're a God who loves us so much that you initiated a rescue plan whereby we as your people could be rescued from our greatest problem, the problem of our rebellion against you and the sinfulness which indwells in us and separates us from relationship with you. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that through him, you made a way for sinful human beings to be brought back in relationship with you, your holy God. And Father, we pray for those of us who have trusted in Christ this morning, those who have placed our hope in him. Father, may you give us the the grace and the strength that we need to endure the difficult days, knowing how the story ends, uh, and eternity with you and your son and your people forever and ever with sin as much as a distant memory. And so God, we pray that you give us the strength that we need this morning in light of your word. We pray that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts, not just this morning, but this week as we continue to meditate on your word to us. And we pray that you would transform us by your spirit in the name of your son. Amen.